Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Kings 18, 17 through 24. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 40, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Noah. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus, so I don't know you. It's good to be here with you. And uh, we've been in a series now for several weeks on Elijah uh, in the book of 1 Kings. And if you've been with us for that time, uh, I, maybe you're noticing this, but kind of what stood out to me is just how similar our world is to where Elijah is this morning. So, you know, you read a book like 1 Kings and it sounds kind of weird, but when you, when you dig a little deeper, you realize there's, there's so much we have in common with where Elijah and Israel are in the midst of this series we've been in. And this morning's story is really no different. So, Elijah is a prophet of God in a pluralistic world, a world with lots of religious options. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in that world now, too. You know, there was a time in, in the U.S. where it was kind of like Judeo-Christian and everything else. <laughs> but we're really not there anymore. Uh, now there are many, many options. There's, you know, it, there's Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Sikh, and more that I can't you know, even name. More, more, many more. We'd be here all day, right? We've become more pluralistic. With different worldviews, lots of different worldviews, living in one society alongside of one another. And that's, that's Elijah's world. Lots of gods, lots of goddesses uh, to choose from. And God's people, Israel, has chosen people to follow and obey him only. Even they're thrown by this reality. Uh, they're confused. Who, who is the true God? And they're, they're kind of being led astray. And Ahab, their king, who's been like the villain in our series so far, and his wife Jezebel, they, they want this. this. They want this confusion. See, they're selling to the people of Israel, you know, with so many options, why choose one? Pick and choose. Pick what you want. Uh, make it fit you and what you want. And so Israel's drifted away from the God of the Bible and they've begun to incorporate Baalism. You heard that in the scripture reading, Baalism, which was a popular, religious, uh, popular religion at the time <clears throat> in this region. Uh, because why choose something when you can choose everything? It's a, little bit of this, it's a little bit of everything. And this is exactly where we are today, too. It's no different. 
And it's, you know, we're trained that way. In almost every other part of our lives, we get to pick and choose what we want. We get a customized experience, right? It's like, I want Netflix, but I don't want a contract. I want to commit to it. Let's pay month to month. And I want it to learn my preferences, right? I want, it to, I want the interface to be customizable. I want a Paw Patrol and for my kids and Gilmore Girls for me right there on the front page so that I'm ready to go. Or whatever you like, whatever you want to watch. Right? Our faith, so there's so many ways in our lives we, we interact like that, and our faith can do this. The best of all worlds. You know, I want um, Jesus for forgiveness because he's good at that, but I want materialism for my bank account. Uh, I want um, God for my life insurance policy. Uh, but I want selfish uh, pleasure right up until I need to cash it in. Right? We can do that. We can pick and choose. So how does God respond to a world like ours and a world like Elijah's? Well, that's what we're going to learn in this story. So what God does in a world like that with many options, here's what God does. He says, um, he calls for a cage match. He calls for a fight with Baal through Elijah. That's really what happens in the story. One-on-one, God versus Baal. And God says, before you choose your God, give me a chance. Put me in the ring. See what happens. And then choose who your God will be. See, Israel needed this contest. They need this moment, and we do too. And we're going to learn about the true God along the way as we look at this story. So if you, if you brought your Bible, uh, open it to the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 18 is where we're going to be. While you're doing that, let me catch you up a little bit on this story. So uh, Elijah, if you remember, he's been hiding in, a, in Sidon for three years, basically, uh, Sidon is a neighboring pagan country to Israel, so he's not in his homeland. He's been hiding there for three years. Ahab is trying to kill him, the king of Israel, so he's hiding from him. And he's been staying there with a widow and her son. We talked about them last week uh, for all these years. And uh, this whole time that Elijah has been gone, the drought that Elijah uh, prophesied would happen has, has been over the whole land for three years. No rain, no water for three years. So Israel, is, they're tired, they're hungry, they're cranky, they smell bad. It's been a while since, I mean, you can't waste water bathing. So, so finally God decides it's time. Now is the time. And in verse 1 of chapter 18, he goes to Elijah. God says to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah finally goes back to his homeland. He goes back to Israel to set up this fight. And in the meantime, in, in verse 5, we, we kind of cut back to Ahab. What's he up to? And Ahab, the evil king, he is out looking for water for his livestock. He's not looking for water for his people. <laughs> He's looking for water for his wealth. He says, I don't want to lose any more livestock. So he is out looking for water where they might have missed it before. And he enlists the help of a guy named Obadiah. And uh, Obadiah is his household manager. It's like his estate manager. Really influential guy. And he says, Obadiah, you go out over there and look for water. I'm going to go out and look over here. And look for water. Now, Ahab doesn't know that Obadiah is faithful to God. Obadiah has been hiding other prophets of God uh, in caves and, and providing for them while Jezebel, to keep them from being killed by Jezebel. Jezebel, in this, this whole time Elijah's been gone, has been systematically executing the prophets of God that, that remained in the land. She wants to wipe all of them out. But Obadiah has been helping. So Obadiah is one of the good guys. And it, it really turns out, you know, Elijah's not alone in this. And that's a theme we'll see more throughout the series. There are people who still worship God in the land. So Obadiah, uh, he's out looking for water to appease his boss, and he runs into Elijah, 
who's just come back. And Elijah says, Obadiah, go get Ahab and bring him to me. I have a proposition for him. And Obadiah kind of hems and haws and says, listen, Elijah, I'm going to go do this, but if you're not here when I bring him back, I'm a dead man. You have to stay. <laughs> Can't run away. And Elijah says, that's fine, go, go, go do it. So Obadiah gets Ahab, he brings him to Elijah. And Elijah says to Ahab, go get all of Israel, Ahab, probably like the leaders, representatives, go get all of Israel and bring them to Mount Carmel. And we're going to have a, your God versus mine. God versus Baal. You bring your entourage of a thousand prophets and I'm going to bring me and we're going to see who wins. And uh, Ahab likes those odds. <laughs> so he says, sure, I'm going to do that. And he knows when, when I get Elijah on this mountain and he fails, I can kill him and no one will raise, no one will raise a finger. So <laughs> Ahab gets everyone. Now everyone's on the mount and the stage is set and Elijah looks at Israel. He looks at his fellow countrymen and he says this, this is in verse 21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, I want to stop there for a second. So here's what's interesting to me. Elijah could have said, hey, Israel, your problem is that you're following the wrong God. Choose, choose Yahweh. He doesn't, but he doesn't say that. He says, Israel, your problem is that you have not chosen at all. You're limping between two. He says, you're, you're on the fence between two opinions. You're limping between two opinions is literally what he says. He says, hey, Israel, choose a God today. That's your problem. No more back and forth, right? Elijah's saying, given all the options for gods on, on, on the menu for Israel, <clears throat> it's just as dangerous to avoid the choice as it is to make the wrong choice. It's just as dangerous. It is just as dangerous to say maybe to God over and over and over again as it is to say yes to Baal. You see, Israel in practice right now, they're kind of praying to Yahweh for some stuff and they're praying to Baal for some stuff and they're probably praying to somebody else for other stuff that we don't even know about, right? They want to keep their options open. They want all, the best of all possible worlds. They want the freedom without commitment. And this is what Elijah's confronting them about. This is why he does what he does, but they don't answer him a word. They don't say a word back to him. Why? Well, maybe it's because they know he's right and they're ashamed, but I think they just don't understand the problem. It's like they're all saying, why would we choose when we can have both, Elijah? What's, what's the big deal? <laughs> Get over it. What's the difference anyway, Elijah, right? What, aren't these basically the same thing? It's like Baal, Yahweh, Across the pond in Greece, they like Zeus, and they like Thor way up north. What, what, who cares? What's the difference? And, and, right, that's a very modern question too, isn't it? What's the difference? We too live in a time when, when people feel this way about religion in general. It's not that they think every religion is wrong, it's that they think every religion is right, or at least partially right. It's part of the truth. So what's the difference? Don't they all teach the same thing? Why choose one? Why argue about it? Why, why mess with it at all? Just pick the one you like and, and go with that. That's fine. See, this is a very modern attitude about religion. And I, I want to try to summarize it for you in an analogy. I'm going to hope not to confuse you along the way, okay? So you know an analogy is good when it's confusing. No, I'm just kidding. So, so it's, you know, in our time, uh, we tend to think that truth, religious truth, is like an elephant. 
okay? Maybe you've heard this analogy before. So, in every religion, every worldview is like a blind man hugging a different part of that elephant, which sounds weird to say out loud, but that's the analogy. So it's, it's like a blind man hugging a different part of the elephant. And so Christianity, let's just put some examples. So Christianity is, is the guy hugging the leg. And so you know, it's like, no, no, the truth is like a tree. But, you know, another religion, Buddhism, is hugging the trunk. And that guy says, no, 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 Truth is like a snake, Right? But our culture says, see, they're all confused. They're all arguing with each other, but they're all hugging the same thing. They just don't know it. All religions teach the same thing. So eventually when they get enough, uh, when they hug enough of the elephant, they'll figure out what it is together and they won't have to argue about it anymore because they're all, they're, all, they're all teaching the same thing. And Elijah confronts that attitude. He says, that is death. You cannot live like that. That's like a spiritual tar pit. It, it sounds humble. It sounds humble to say, hey, none, we, we all have a little bit of truth, but it's actually totally incoherent. So when you say something like, no religion has the whole truth, or nobody has a superior view to anyone else, what you're really saying is that no one but you has a superior view to everyone else, right? You see what I'm saying? If, if you say, no one sees the whole truth, then you're claiming to see the whole truth. Because how else would you know that no one else sees the whole truth? Right? The only way the analogy of the elephant works is if someone can see that it's an elephant. It's like, well, none of you have all the truth, but I can see it's an elephant. That's why you're wrong. See, it's totally, it's, you end up in an effort to say no one has all the truth. You say, but I have the whole truth. It's, it's incoherent. It doesn't work. And perhaps more importantly, at least in my experience, is that holding to that view of religion, that they're all the same, there's no difference, it actually ends up harming you personally. Right? You, when you, it's, like a, it's like giving up on the question on quest of truth. Well, why? They're all the same. You stop asking good questions, like, well, what is the truth? And how do I find it? And maybe these are different. What makes them different? Right? You stop searching, because why bother? It's all the same. And, and I know people who are stuck in this trap, and they can't move on because they, they think it's all the same. Why, why bother? And at least our widow from last week, if you were here, she was a Baal worshiper. I mean, she, from the biblical worldview, was worshiping the wrong God all her life. But when she was confronted with evidence to the contrary, ah, Yahweh is stronger than Baal. He can provide for me and my family, even in the drought. And Baal can't. When she's confronted with that, she changes her mind. She says, no, this is better than what I was doing. She changes. Israel here, when they're confronted to choose, they just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, whatever, whatever, Elijah. So here's the first thing we learn here. Here's what Elijah's teaching us. He's, if God is anything to you, then he must be everything. If he's anything, he must be everything. There's no in between. You, you can reject God and you can argue that point. You can choose Baal if you think he's better, or, or you can accept God and commit to him, but what you cannot do is say that the two are the same thing. You have to pick one. You've got to put God in the cage match. You have to. It's what he wants you to do. There has to be a winner. There's no neutrality. That's why Elijah's doing what he's doing. He's forcing the issue with Israel. He says, you're going to see who is the real God. 
You cannot have Baal and God. If God's anything to you, Israel, says Elijah, then he must be everything to you. So when they don't say anything, he's confronted them and they just remain silent. He turns around, he, he begins talking to his opponents, the prophets of Baal. These are, these are his opponents. And he starts to set up the parameters of the contest. So this is in verse 23. He says, uh, let two bulls be given to us let them, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but, but do not put fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and, and I will put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Now Elijah's working really hard here, right? It's like you pick the bull, you go first. All the advantages go to you. And the people say, that's great. Great idea, Elijah. So the prophets, they pick their bull, they, cut, they, they slaughter it, they cut it into pieces, they put it over the wood, and they start, they start worshiping. They start praying, they start dancing, calling out to Baal. They say, oh, Baal, answer us. And they do this for hours and hours. They do it from morning to noon and noon to evening. And the whole time they're doing this, absolutely nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. And it gets so embarrassing for them. Elijah starts making fun of them in verse 27. He says, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened, right? And it's like, try harder, guys. Maybe your God is, uh, is in the bathroom distracted by his cell phone. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you, know, maybe you need to wake him up. He's some sick burns from Elijah in this text, and I love it. And I, he's my hero, and I've tried to model my sense of humor after Elijah. <laughs> because it's, bi- it's biblical. See, it's biblical. <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Okay, so eventually... Eventually, the prophets are, are desperate enough that they begin to actually cut themselves. This is what the text says. They, they cut themselves. And uh, this was uh, not unusual in Baal worship. It's basically, the idea was, okay, the blood of the bull isn't getting Baal's attention, so I'm going to offer my own blood. I'm going to begin to cut myself and see if that will get his attention. But here's the result of everything they do, okay? So... The text says, at the time of the oblation, which is just a fancy word for sacrifice. So it's deep into the evening now. Look at verse 29. No one answered and no one paid attention. That's the summation of everything they've done. No one answered, no one paid attention. Now, uh, it's easy to look at this story with, with Elijah and make fun of it. It's easy to say, look at these stupid prophets dancing around a dead animal, praying to a God we can't even pronounce anymore. (laughs) A God completely lost to history. We wouldn't even know who Baal is without the Bible. Nobody would care. At least we don't have an idolatry problem like these people. See, I'm getting too predictable. You already know where I'm going with this. Right, so let me tell you what I think. I think that we are actually worse than the pagans in this story. We're worse off in some ways than they are. There, are. there are a lot of different, I mean, there's a lot we disagree with, there's a lot they do we wouldn't do, but it, they at least had the presence of mind to admit that images made by human hands have incredible power over us. At least they could name, they had the courage to name their gods in a way that modern people like me do not. 
For all our claims to spiritual progress, scientific progress, human progress, moral progress, we still worship at the altar of many, many, many gods. We don't call her Aphrodite anymore. We don't call her Asherah anymore. But we worship images of beauty, don't we? We, uh, we, we call it advertising, call it marketing. And we say, you know, no, 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 it's not religious. It's not religious. All we're trying to do is get people to aspire to this image in such a way that it changes their heart and their lifestyle and their choices and they become permanent loyal customers to our brand. Right, this is, <laughs> this is marketing language for a, for a religious exercise. It's the same thing. It is, it is religious, and none of us are immune to this, right? These, these, these gods have power over us if we let them. And, you know, you ever walk <clears throat> in the mall, and you're, like, walking by Gap or something, whatever's popular now, I don't know. You're walking by Gap, um, and it's like, you know, you're walking, it's like picture after picture after picture of young, beautiful people wearing Gap clothes, and you, you look long enough to, to then catch a reflection of yourself, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> right? You've done this before? You're like, I, I need gap. <laughs> um, what is that? Why does that happen? Why do we do that? Well, the, the ancients knew what that was. It's worship. You're worshiping. You're, you're dancing around the dead animal, saying, Gap, save me. Gap, help me. So, yeah. We play with the same spiritual fire that, that these people are playing with, but, but we, just don't, we just don't name it for what it is. And we don't grapple with the implications of, the, of what it does to us. So, you're, I mean, you remember the financial crash of 2008. Surely you remember that. So, and it, you know, I was in grad school at the time, and, when, and it felt like the country was like waking up from a dream, saying, why did we do this to ourselves? How did this happen? Right, this devastating financial crash. And it, it basically, I mean, we didn't have the categories to describe what we were feeling, but we, we had been dancing around the God of money, fast money. And in 2008, we realized that there is no answer and there's no voice. There's nobody there. And it was devastating. It's still devastating. We're still recovering. And it, you remember that, what else do you call the string of corporate suicides that followed that? Do you remember that? These, these men and women who killed themselves because they lost so much money so quickly. And what is that other than the acknowledgement that our bail had failed us? Right? To, to the, the admission that, we, that the sacrifice was for nothing and that no amount of love of family or spouses or children or friends was enough to keep living. It was over. What is that if not the worship of a false god? That's what it is. We have not outgrown our need for Elijah. We still need this voice. If God is anything, then everything else is nothing. This is the second thing. If God, if God is anything, then everything else is nothing. If God is the true God, we must call our idols for what they are and throw them aside as nothing. Even our religious idols. Okay, the church can worship Baal too. We can go to God to manipulate him to give us good things. I obey because I want you to listen to me, God. I prayed this prayer because I want a specific answer from you. See, we're, that's Baal. We're manipulating him. 
It's the same thing. If God is anything, then everything else is nothing. We don't tell God what to do, and we don't put anything else in our lives in the place of God. Now, <clears throat> with that in mind, we all have idols in our lives. We do. Just, it's okay to just admit it. If you want to know where they are, for you, they're different. If you want to know where they are, look for the, the slashes. Look for the cuts. Look for the blood in your life. Okay, all idols demand sacrifice from you. That's what they do. So where are you bleeding? Where, what are you doing in your life right now that you know is bad, you know is wrong, you know is hurting you, is bad for you, but you're doing it anyway? Right, like, man, I know I can't keep working 80 hours a week. This is unsustainable. It's hurting my relationships. It's hurting me physically. It's hurting me emotionally. But I'm going to do it one more time. Because then X. Because then my boss. Because then my coworker. Because then my salary. Because then my resume. I mean, whatever it is. What you're, or, you know, we're living beyond our means. We're pay, we're, we, we are not being wise with our money. I know, I know we're overspending. Uh, we're, <clears throat> we're going into debt, but just one more gadget, just one more car, just one more vacation, um, just one more credit card, just one more cut, and, and then we'll be okay. Okay, so where, where are the cuts? And, and, and when you find those things, call them what they are. They are God's competing for your allegiance in your heart and then put them in the cage with God. And God knows that you, he, from them you will hear no voice. You will hear no answer. No one will call out back to you. Because only one God answers by fire. This is the last thing I want to talk about. God is, God is everything because he answers by fire. He's the only one. It's not enough to realize that there's no spiritual neutrality you have to choose is not enough to admit I have idols. You have to see God's answer to your prayer in the fire. So Israel needed this. Israel had to see this. So after the prophets of Baal completely fail, nothing happens, okay? It's Elijah's turn. And, and he does basically the same thing. He builds an altar. But he uses 12 stones, which represent the tribes of Israel. He prepares the bull over the wood on the altar. He drenches, this is what he does differently. He drenches the offering three times in water. Enough to fill a little moat that he also dug around the altar. So he's, he, there's no trickery here. He's saying there's I'm, there's, I'm making this as hard as possible to light on fire. And then he prays this amazing prayer in verse 36. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And right after these words, fire falls down from heaven. It consumes the offering, the wood, the stones, and the water. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing left. And not long afterwards, and you're going to hate me for doing this, but I can't tell this whole, I can't do this whole story justice. So not long afterwards, God sends rain on the land for the first time in three and a half years, proving I am God. And the people go to these false prophets who have, who have perpetrated incredible evil in their land. And we talked about that in the first sermon, incredible evil in their land. And they wipe them out. 
and they cry out to God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. They repent, in other words. They repent. But only after the fire. Now here's why I think that's important. Okay, if we were reading this whole book of 1 Kings, from the beginning, we would have seen in chapter 8, all the way back in chapter 8, there's a guy named Solomon, who's a king in Israel, who dedicated the temple. And when he prayed a dedication over the temple, here's what he said. He said, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because of the sin of your people. So this very scenario, is Solomon's predicting this. If they pray toward this place and they acknowledge your name and they turn from their sin, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and then grant rain upon your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. So Solomon says, when the God, when the people turn back to you, then forgive, then be merciful to them. But the people did not turn back, did they? No one repented. No one acknowledged their sin to God or Elijah. They didn't say a word to Elijah. Even Elijah acknowledges in his prayer to God, God, I want you to show them that you turn hearts. You do. And no one else. And here's the other thing. So fire in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. Basically, every time you see fire, it's a, it's a symbol of judgment because fire purifies, it consumes, it destroys Right, it's a powerful image. Fire is judgment. So if we were reading the book of Kings from the beginning and we had seen the wickedness with which Israel had dealt with God this whole time, right, think of all of the evil that's happened in this country. Child sacrifice, Baal worship. It's incredible. Turning from God, failing in her, Israel failing in her mission from what, the reason she exists. We would be asking, why did the fire not come down on the people? That's what we would be looking for. Why did Israel survive? Why did the fire not consume them? There is no one on the mountain who's repented. There is no one who's worshiped God alone. But the fire doesn't fall on them. It doesn't. It falls on a sacrifice. And when they see that, then they repent and then they choose God. And then when they saw the sacrifice burn in their place, that's what changed the heart. That's what moved them. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is a pattern in the Bible. Maybe you've heard this. So 800 years later, in another mountain in Israel, there's another sacrifice. There's a <laughs> and, and, and the fire of God comes down again. The full weight of God's judgment comes down again on this sacrifice. And this, his name is Jesus. If you wonder, if you've <clears throat> ever wonder why people choose Christianity, right, in the midst of all these options, why people choose this, it's, you've got to see God's answer in the fire. You've got to see your judgment falling on a perfect sacrifice who willingly gives his life for you. That is why people choose Christianity. So when you ask God to prove himself to you in the cage matches of your life, and we, we, we all have those, we have those moments where we, we, where we say, God, answer me. God, prove that you care for me. God, are you listening to me? God, are you doing something about this broken world that I, that I live in? When you look to the heavens and you say, God, where are you? God, answer me. You, you have to see 
but he already answered you in the most powerful and profound way. He's already showed you in the fire from heaven that fell on Calvary what he thinks about you, what he's doing in this world. And I know we live in a world of options. We, we do. And, and I know, I'm a, I mean, I'm a Christian minister. Hopefully that's been obvious to you now. I, I'm biased. <laughs> I get it. But let me, let me speak personally as one who wavered for years and years and years between options. Before I would follow him, let me, let me tell you in my journey, in my life, you, you will not find a God this loving, this beautiful, this real, this true. You will not find a God who submits to fire for you outside of Jesus. So even if you're on the fence about him, you're between options. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you're here, you don't. You're not sure. Maybe you're on the fence about him. Calvary, the cross proves when he, <laughs> that he is absolutely sure about you. There's nothing he will withhold from you. So don't wait. Choose him. Let's pray to him now. Father, we love you. Not because we're good, not because we're special, but because you loved us first. Even if we didn't know it, even if we still don't know it. Even if we've run far from you, you've loved us first. Help us to see in our lives where we worship false gods, gods who enslave and oppress, who ask us for more and more and more and more. Instead, may our hearts always turn back to you, the one who doesn't ask for our blood, but gave his own through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.